Words in Winter podcast is brought to you by Words in Winter, an annual literary and arts festival held in August each year in the Hepburn Shire and surrounding districts. You can find out more by going to wordsinwinter.com. In this episode, Arnold Zabel explores the inspirations, literary influences, sources of ideas and practical lessons learnt in confronting the empty page. Join us for the humanising power of story. Now you might have seen me just pottering around and the reason is because whenever I'm asked to speak about the art of story, I sort of prepare and then I've got a technique called throwing the stone into the pond. And that means I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, I know how I really want to start tonight. And, um, and it puts everything else in a different perspective. And the way I want to start tonight, apart from acknowledging country and Rebecca's gone, that was a wonderful introduction, um, I want to de- dedicate this talk to the Queen of Soul. Aretha Franklin, Aretha Franklin. Now, the song that does it for me is A Rose in Spanish Harlem. And I lived in New York back in the early 70s for three years. And this is a story dedicated to Aretha. Uh, And uh, back then, in the first 18 months, I lived in Washington Heights. And uh, that's on 168th Street, if you know New York, the Upper West Side. And every day I'd go to the subway, make my way down to Columbia University. And on the way, there was a big wall, this amazing wall. And uh, there was a a kind of heading, Writer's Corner. And, uh, you know, on the wall there were these magnificent graffiti names, but beautiful. I didn't know it then, but it was the beginning of the graffiti movement. Worldwide started in Philadelphia and then New York about the same time, early 70s. And, you know, so you had Snake One, you had Stitch One, you had Apollo 15, you had Rocky. Rocky was the one girl in the troupe. We'll come to that in a moment. And you had... Um, the, the best was Stay High. But Stay High, he actually used to raid the, the, um, the subway cars at night when they were stationary. And he was six foot six, came from Harlem. Then, and that time, he shifted to the Bronx, and he used to raid the the uh, the cars. And he'd take a whole carriage, and he'd have "Stay High" emblazoned on the carriage. And on the crossbar of the T, there was a little stick figure smoking a joint, with a halo around his head. And there was, you know, uh, there was "Panic," "Mad One." Uh, all kinds of names on that, that magnificent wall. And after some of the names was written W.A.R.War. So I'm staring at this wall one day and uh, this 14-year-old kid comes up to me, Puerto Rican kid, and he said, well, what are you staring at? I said, oh, you know, look, at this, is, this is great. This is amazing. I love staring at this wall. He said, really? I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm snake one. And that began, that a door opened. And I I said to him, listen, I said, "Uh, what's this writer's corner? He says, well, you know, that's one of the names of of, of our our group, right? 
we're riders, he said. And I said, well, what does war stand for? War, W dot, A dot, R dot, he said, riders already respected. <laughs> this is a true story, you know, and it's interesting, you know, the difference, I mean, I'm always walking a tightrope in my work between fiction and non-fiction, but really, what does fiction mean? It, it comes from the word fictio, which means to shape or to make, just the way you tell a story. And I think the borderline's very thin. And this is a true story. I don't really have to shape it much. And that this door opened. And I used to hang out with these kids, took a lot of photos, um, worked with them to get them into all kinds of programs, but basically just loved hanging out with them. And they took me all over New York City, took me to incredible places. And, um, and, and they said to me, you know, all we want... All we want is to be heard and seen. And the best thing, they said, is to hit a truck that's going to California, right, from New York City, uh, or to hit the trains because your names get taken the length and breadth of the, uh, of the city. And then, he, and then actually there came a time when the Alvin Ailey Dance Company got a wind of what they were doing and they took them, they took them on board and they created this magnificent dance called Graffiti, and there they were, you know, putting their names up as the uh, curtain opened and those dancers performed. And this, to me, is the heart of, in a way, what I'm on about as a writer. And I think it's the heart of what Aretha Franklin was on about as a singer. You know, she was a singer of the grit and the soul and the beauty of the streets. And the soundtrack to this story, well, there are two soundtracks. One soundtrack is um, a rose in Spanish Harlem, because these kids were beautiful. But they were living in situations where they, their families were struggling. Um, but the other soundtrack is actually uh, sung by a group called War. War was a West Coast group, and in the early 70s, the time I was living in New York City, uh, they, ca they put out a record called The World is a Ghetto. Who knows that song, The World is a Ghetto? So when you go home tonight, Google the world is a ghetto and Google uh, a rose in Spanish Harlem and think of this story as you listen uh, to those tracks. So the art of writing. It, my talk is called The Humanising Power of Story. But um, I thought that I'm just going to ad lib and try and get across in different ways what story is all about. And so... I just wanted to read the beginning of one of my books, Sea of Many Returns. This is a book I loved writing, and it's a book that's based on going to the island of Ithaca for, uh, well, every few years, my wife and I and our son Alexander would go there and live in the village for about oh, three, four months. We did this four times. And... Um, uh, you know, if, if someone asked me how did I get together the stories that led to this novel, Sea of Many Returns, which is based on the family stories uh, that uh, Dora's family told me, but it's also based on, you know, stories I heard at Ithacan gatherings. I was at one Ithacan gathering and, and, and someone said, you know, said to me, you know, my grandfather uh, was driven out of Kalgoorlie and... Um, and then I kept hearing about these people who had grandfathers or great uncles who were driven out of Kalgoorlie. And then I started to nail it down. And, um, 
and it came, it came down to a date, December 16th, um, 1916, when 2,000 drunken Aussies, who were hurting, mind you, they were hurting, they were hurting because the hospital ships were coming back from Gallipoli, bringing back the wounded and the mad, the insane. You know, we glorify them now, but a lot of them were insane. And people didn't want to know them back then when they were insane. They used to be hanging out in the shadows. Even in Melbourne, they were hanging out in the shadows. But on that day, about 2,000 folks from Kalgoorlie and Boulder just went on a drunken rampage, burned some of those shops, crashed the shops run by all the Greeks that were living in Kalgoorlie and because uh, they used to service the gold fields. And, you know, this is one of our hidden narratives, many hidden stories. I know Rebecca has many. And these are the stories that need to be brought to the light. So uh, I went and I researched it. It's interesting because in those days the newspapers had really long reports. The newspapers were the prime source of news. They used to write beautifully too. And there was a full page in the Kalgoorlie Minor that told the story of the riots blow by blow. But when I went to the public library to check it down, that whole page, that one page had been neatly cut out with a razor blade. And I sent off and I finally got it from WA. So, but I wanted to begin with the first part of this, first paragraph in this book, because I just love reading it. And I think it says so much uh, about what turns me on as a storyteller and a, a writer. But I've got to say that most of these, many of these stories, the ones that are set on Ithaca, came my way um, uh, as I walked. Now, everyone on, on Ithaca has a parachukli, that means a nickname. Right? And the reason you have a nickname is because there's not only five yarnies in a village, but there's often three or four yarni papadopoluses. So you've got to have a nickname. So this guy's called Fatso, and this one's called Ritso, and this one's called uh, Burdas. There's all these nicknames. And Dora and I used to be called the walkers because we used to walk everywhere. And, um, and the, our favourite walk was just going from the village of the 40 Saints, Ayo Saranda, in the northern heights of Ithaca. We'd do this walk that would take about 35 minutes to Stavros, the major town, and um, in the northern heights. I mean, mind you, when we went to the village, we were, lit, we were sleeping in the room and in the bed uh, where her father was actually born. And we were also, um, and not only that, one day he woke up at the age of 10 and his father was away in distant Australia in the city of Melvurni. And he woke up one morning, he used to sleep with his mum. He woke up one morning and his mother had died overnight beside him. And I um, uh, wasn't going to tell you that story, but that's how it was. But we used to sleep in that bed and we used to open the shutters in the morning and hear the the goat herbs uh, coming by. I've actually got a, a CD called The Fig Tree based on another book of stories and this CD begins with um, a clarinet melody, a doina. It's a melody that's um, played in the, um, in the mountains of, of uh, uh, Romania and Hungary 
and very close to my own ancestry of Eastern European Jews. But it leads to the bells of Ithaca. And the way that was recorded is that one day I just stuck a tape recorder through the shutters and there it was, 7am, the shepherd would come by to take those uh, goats and sheep up to the mountains. But there was this 40-minute walk and finally you got to Stavros. I'll get to this eventually. Finally you got to Stavros. And when you got to Stavros, uh, I used to love uh, uh, having a coffee in the old Café Neon, the old coffee shop. This is where the, the sailors, the old sailors used to hang out. They knew every single wind. They had a name for every wind. I know indigenous people have got languages that have got incredible richness when it comes to naming the winds, naming the, the different textures of the earth. You know, language that is attuned to a certain reality. Um, and I used to sit there and the stories would come my way. And one day, it was the last September... It was the last day in September 2006. And I'm sitting, uh, there was a little patio outside the, the cafe and I'm having a coffee and I'm writing in my journal, if you sit in the old Cafe Neon of uh, Stavros long enough, everything you want to know and everyone you want to see will come your way. And a guy steps out and says, it was about 5 p.m. No, it wasn't. No, it was, uh, I think it was, uh, it was 5 p.m. here. There it was about, um, I think, uh, 10 a.m. And he said, West Coast Eagles by one point. <laughs> <laughs> you can check it out. That's what happened back then. Won't happen this year, but we won't go, we won't go there. We won't go there. <laughs> Um, but uh, I just loved uh, the island. And it, the interesting thing here, I mean, who, who can tell stories? Rebecca was talking about, you know, authorship of stories. And uh, this was scary to write because all the characters there, not all of them, but many of them are Greek. And I personally don't come from a Greek background. But I fell in love with that island. I fell in love with a girl from Ithaca. Um, and I lived there and I worked there. I went up into the mountains and picked the olives um, and, and these stories came to me. And people would often say, we want these stories to be told. And finally when I sit, sat down to write it, I could feel the gravity of it. But I knew, I knew it was right. And, and the, there's a lot of debates going on now about stories and who owns them and who should tell them. Um, and it's... My dear friend Tony Birch just a month ago gave a talk about this um, and he said something which really resonated. He said the real issue is, are you willing to take responsibility? Are you willing to take responsibility for that story? You know, are you willing to stand up and tell that story and then enter into that conversation as to how that story came to you? So finally I'm going to read you this beginning of this um, this paragraph, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the sort of things that go into it. And it is another answer to that question. It's another uh, way of looking at uh, responding to that question, who has a right to tell stories? Beware, dear reader, 
The story you are about to be told is a fairy tale, a romance. There will be time enough later to tear it to shreds. In the meantime, sit back and become a child again. Is there not enough darkness in the world? Come, sit by the fire. Allow the voice of the storyteller to soothe you while you gaze at the flames. Perhaps it is an uncle, a grandmother, perhaps a lifelong friend. The day has drawn to an end. Your work is done. Outside, a storm is brewing. The wind is rising. It mocks the seas and rattles the shutters, but inside, the fire is burning, and the fire loves you. Ahi tu parimidiu. The fairy tale begins. Kalisperisas. Good evening to you. Now, that one paragraph could not have been written if I had not fallen in love with Ithaca and with a girl from Ithaca and gone there and lived with the people and listened. Before you tell the story, you're a listener. And one night we were sitting in the old kitchen built by Dora's father when he was a 14-year-old boy with his brother when he was 16. They built this strange kitchen that looks like an igloo while their father was away in distant Australia. And, um, and it, was really a, it was really a strange, beautiful, Chagall-like kitchen. And um, we, were, we used to sit by the fire at night with old Uncle Dimitri, the older brother who had built it, who never left Ithaca. The younger brother left Ithaca and came to Melbourne and was very unhappy. The older brother went through war, went through civil war, went through the resistance, and yet he was the happier man that lived longer, far longer. And he was sitting in front of the fire and he was about 80 years old and he said, look at the fire. The fire is burning nicely. The fire loves you. So it comes to you. These beautiful things come to you. And when you say, the fairy tale begins, good evening to you, that's the way great grandmothers begin their stories. And so you start to absorb it and you start to know the way to tell the story. You know, when it comes to storytelling, there's a wonderful essay written by uh, Walter Benjamin. He was a, a wonderful thinker back in the 1930s. Uh, and you can still find this, this uh, essay in a book with the beautiful title, Illuminations. And, um, he say, and there's a, an essay called The Storyteller. And he says there's basically two types of storyteller. One, and we're all a bit of both. One is what he calls the merchant seaman, right? Uh, but it could be have many other names, you know. Now, these are the, peop the stories from people who go on journeys. They go on long journeys. They're spatial. They go from place to place. It could be Marco Polo on his journeys to China coming back with the, uh, the recipe for pasta. That's where it comes from. Uh, or it could be, you know, one of the epics like Gilgamesh. Or it could be, actually it could be Odysseus or Ulysses leaving the island of Ithaca, that very island, and setting out for what it would be just a year fighting the Trojan Wars. But he was away for 20 years. 
10 years fighting the wars and 10 years making his way back on those adventures that are now called the Odyssey and um, sung by Blind Homer. That's how they began, with uh, Blind Homer at the Lyra uh, telling, singing those stories. Now, one day, we're sitting in the kitchen with old Aunt Yorgia, Dimitri's wife, and we're watching on Ithaca um, an American production of The Odyssey with Greek subtitles. And um, Aunt Yorgia is, you know looking at it, and, and she sees Odysseus with the beautiful Circe, and then hanging out with Calypso, with all these beautiful women, and, you know, all their lives, they, you know, the girls of Ithaca have been told to be faithful to their man while he was away at sea, and all their lives they've been told, you know, just be patient, they'll come back sometime. You know the story, Penelope's story, and she says, Bob, 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 what an idiot I've been. You know, what a load of rubbish. Putanus in there, he's a whore. That's all he is, a whore. If only I'd known when I was young. But that first type of storyteller is a storyteller that comes back with the law, L-O-R-E, the law of faraway places. Look where I've been. Look what I've seen. Look at the magnificent cities I've, I've visited. In fact... When I set out to write this book, um, I don't directly mention the Odyssey, but I do have one section in the beginning, just this, one moment from the Odyssey. I'll read it to you. This, this section comes from the moment when Odysseus is, wo is washed up naked on the shore uh, of an island and he's found by the princess and her, her friends on, a, on, on the beach, and he's taken to the, to the city, to King Elsinus, I think his name was, and first he's bathed and fed and given a roof over his head. Think about that. Think about that. Think about Manus Island. Think about Nehru. First you're bathed and fed and given a roof over your head. It's the ancient practice of Philoxenia. We know what xenophobia is. Xenos, outsider, phobia, fear. So xenophobia means fear of the stranger, fear of the outsider. But philoxenia, which is a very known word in the Greek language, but almost unknown in the English language, means friend of the stranger, love of the stranger, philo, senia. And it's an ancient custom. And why do people practice this custom? It's a simple reason. You often find it with nomadic people, desert people, rituals of welcome. You find it with island people. And they practice it for one simple reason, because they know that with one shift in the wind, you can become the stranger. That's why you welcome the stranger, because you're welcoming yourself. And you're treating, treating them as you would like to be treated if you are the stranger. So that's the first type of storyteller. Could be you guys coming back with photos after long journeys that no one wants to really look at. But now the second type of storyteller, I didn't plan it this way, but this it kind of feels right. The second type of storyteller is, um, I'll tell you a story 
to explain what the to illustrate what the second type of storyteller is all about. Um, one, um, our, our first, my first long journey to Ithaca was was just before our son was born, and and Dora and I. This was back in 1990. Spent a number of months there, and um, uh, as I said, we were known as we were actually our nickname was Metapodia, with the feet. Because we walked everywhere, right? That was our parachukli. I knew I'd get to it sometime. And um, uh, and and one one day we're uh, at the top of a mountain. The highest mountain on Ithaca is Mount Anoyi. And on near the top of that mountain, there's a wonderful monastery called Kathara. You've got goats and cows wandering in and out. Um, you've got the Ionian Sea stretched out before you. It was a beautiful Ionian day, bright blue skies. And we decided we'd walk the four kilometres or so down to the village of Anoyi, the mountain village of Anoyi, the most ancient living village of the island. But 20 minutes later, the sky is black. Sailors warn you of this, that suddenly the sky can turn black. And then the heavens opened up and the winds were howling. We put up our umbrellas and they were torn to shreds. So we had two alternatives either to weep or to laugh hysterically, which we did, all the way down the four kilometres, and we knocked on the first door, and a woman opens the door. Turned out she was 93 years old. She had three teeth, <laughs> from what I could see. And she opened her mouth a lot. And I'll, and, and I'll explain why in a moment. And ten minutes later, we're sitting in front of fire, and uh, I'm, I'm sitting in one of her dear departed's old outfits as our clothes were drying, and Dora's wearing a dress uh, that smelt of ancestral dust. <laughs> and uh, she began telling stories. That's when I saw the three teeth. And she began telling stories. Now, she said that she had never left the island. I found it very hard to believe, but she said, I never left the island. She said, I rarely leave the village except to go down sometimes to the port town of Vathi. Um, and yet she could tell stories for days on end. Like the Shiniki. You know the Shiniki? The Irish Shiniki? They can tell stories for days on end. And they don't leave. They stay in one place, right? Now, what sort of stories was she telling? You know, she was telling stories of... Well, in some ways, it was glorified uh, village gossip. You know, she knew who planted every single olive tree... Who planted uh, the the, uh, the vineyards and the and the disputes? You know, people will kill each other over a meter of dirt, whether the boulder stone is here or there. And she knew about the couples who had many years ago eloped and disappeared to distant Australia, never to be seen again. You know, she knew. What did she know? The first type of storyteller, their stories are spatial. This type of storyteller, the stories are temporal, right? They bring back the lore, L-O-R-E, of the ancestors. Indigenous peoples tell these stories because they know one place and they know it well. And um, when I was researching Scraps of Heaven... When I was um, researching Scraps of Heaven, my novel set in Carlton in my childhood, where I went back to the streets of Carlton when I was a kid, when I went back to the house I grew up in, 387 Kenning Street, North Carlton, 
a single front of Victorian Terrace. When we moved in, it was a rat-infested slum. That's what they called them back then. We were living alongside working-class Aussies. And we were Greeks, we were Italians, we were Jews, we, we were Yugoslavs. And uh, we, we had our conflicts and we had our harmonies. And um, uh, we loved the streets. I loved the streets. The character Josh is always running out to the streets. Why? Because inside the house there's a mother with black eyes. And her eyes were the eyes of a gypsy. And inside those eyes, there was so much love, but there was also so much pain. And I would hear in the distant kitchen, late at night, you could hear a chant of names, ancient names. And it was my father and my mother with their old world friends sitting around endless cups of tea and the occasional nip of vodka. And they were saying, Bielsk, Breinsk. Bialystok, Grudik, Orly. This was my dreaming, my dreamscape, somewhere over there on the Russian-Polish border. And my mum would show me photos. And I'd say, who are these people? Or well, I found them. She wouldn't show to me. I found these photos. And she'd say, oh, three of my six sisters, one of, one of my three brothers, your uncle Joshua, um, your cousins Frida and Heimke, um, your grandmother Hannah Esther, where are they now? I don't want to talk about it. And in time, I, I began to find out. There were ghosts in the house. There was my mum waking up late at night from a nightmare, recurring dream, saying, Mama, Mama. And one day I crept down the passage from the second room to the front bedroom and I heard her say to my dad, I've had this dream again. And in this dream, my village is on fire and I'm running from the flames with my brothers and sisters. And one by one we fall until I'm the last one left running. My father, it seemed, was the only one still alive from a large family. My mother was just one of three sisters who had made it out of that Gehenna, that hell. So it led me to go on a journey. And I'll, I'll end telling you a little bit about that journey. But I wanted to read the first page of Scraps of Heaven. Because I loved those streets. And when it comes to the second type of storyteller, if you want to know those streets, you've got to have lived in them and walked them. Walk those back lanes and see that when you smell jasmine, you know, you know that spring is coming. And you see the black-eyed Susans trailing down the back fences. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know... The, the storytellers, the equivalent of that old woman of Ithaca, of Anoyi, is the guy that's been standing at the bar for 40 years at Fogarty's, the corner hotel. Uh, I used to run numbers for the bookies as a kid. You could get a couple of bob and save up for a bike. And so a guy, you'd, co you'd go to the corner pub and they'd give you um, this slip of paper. They just got the, the prices from the race course, right? And you'd have to take it to this back lane. And at either end of back lane, there were the cockies, cockatoos. They were on the lookout for the cops. And then you'd take it to a guy, and they were gambling in that back lane, and they were getting the, the prices from the courts. Um, but when I, I set out to write this book, this is what I actually did. I actually closed my eyes, 
And I thought, what's the first thing I see? What's the first thing I see from back there? And this is what I saw. And interestingly enough, when I first wrote, um, uh, wrote this, part, this piece, it was before um, I was planning the novel, I just wrote it, and it was in first person. When I came to write the novel, I made it third person. I become Josh. I wanted to detach myself from myself so I could create perhaps a more diverse type of character. But let's forget technique, and I'll just read you from the beginning of this book. And boy, that I loved writing this passage, and I love writing passages like this. It's just a pure pleasure. Late at night, weaving in and out of his dreams, comes the neighing of a horse, the metallic clip-clop of hooves, the rattling and tinkling of bottles, the quick rhythmic steps of a man on the run, interrupted by the creaking of the front gate flung wide open. And from his half-sleep, Josh can hear him, the milkman, deposit the half-dozen or so bottles by the front door. It is a comforting sound, a familiar sound. It has about it a sense of orderliness and regularity. It emanates goodwill and seems to whisper, all is well in the world. While you sleep, little children, you are being looked after. Josh has never seen the face of the milkman. He remains a creature of the night, of the pre-dawn hours. All he knows of him is the sound of his deliveries, the footsteps, the final swing of the gate shut as he retreats on the run back to the milk cart. Then, like phantoms, the horses move on, the neighing subsides, the jingling vanishes into the distance. And there, in the morning, as if to prove it was not merely a dream, stand the bottles, gleaming white, neatly arranged by the doormat, twinkling with dew, while on the road lies a trail of horse manure. <laughs> ah, for Romick, Josh's father, this is gold. He rolls up his sleeves, shovels the manure into a bucket and carries it on the run through the house, through the backyard, where he spreads it over his vegetable patch under an early morning sun. <laughs> and really, that's what it is. What, what, is the word, what does imagination actually mean? I'll, I'll finish uh, with, with one or two things. And one of the, one of the things is this, this word imagination. You know, if you want to know the meaning of words like fiction, fictio, to shape, to make, look at the word. And you see it anew, and you see that the first two syllables say image. So imagination is not necessarily making something up. It is seeing it, hearing it, smelling it, tasting it, touching it. So that's the beauty of storytelling. When you stand up in front of a, 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 an audience, you tell a story. You're safe if you see it again. You're safe if when you're talking about that wall with Stitch, Snake, Apollo 15, Rocky, Panic, Mad One, you're safe if you're seeing that wall again. You're safe if you're seeing the streets of Carlton again. And similarly, when you sit down to write it, it's the same. You're safe. And if you can't see enough, it means you've got to do a bit of work.
They call it research. What does research mean? It means look again. Re, again, search. That's what it means. That's all it means. And in many, many ways. And one way for me was to go back. Go back on a journey. I went alone. I went for three months. I went with a rucksack on my back. I went trans-Siberian from Beijing, the length of the Soviet Union, to China. Through China, through the Soviet Union, to Moscow, and then down to those borderlands. I went to Bielsk, Bransk, Bielostok, Grudik, Orly. I walked those streets. I went out to the old cemeteries that were hidden in the forests and the stones of my ancestors sinking, sinking into dust. I went to places of great darkness, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Sobibor, Belzec, Majdanek, but I went to places where I discovered jewels, stories that I'd never heard before. But the main thing I discovered were maps. I came back with the maps of my ancestors. I came back and I could sit with my mother in the kitchen and I'd mention, oh, I saw birch trees, berioses, the length of Siberia. And my mum begins to sing a song. The birch tree is a streak of silver flashing in and out of the journey, slender saplings maturing into slim, elegant, elegant sentinels standing mile upon mile, reappearing the length of the empire, sometimes alone, sometimes in forests, reflecting shafts of sunlight back at us as we stand, hour upon hour, our faces peering from the carriages, alert with curiosity and mesmerised by the rhythm of the train conveying us headlong in our dash across Siberia. The birch, the berioza, the berioskele. It features often their mother's repertoire of Yiddish songs. She sits in front of a heater, enduring in her old age yet another Melbourne winter. Where she once lived, the winters were far more severe. Here it is cold enough nevertheless, and she bends over towards the glowing bars of a radiator and hums softly to herself. Melodies rise like wisps of smoke from a smouldering fire. The kitchen in which she sits is a jumble of chip crockery, fading tablecloths, cracked and wool linoleum, all of which she is reluctant to replace. She feels more at home surrounded by that which reminds her of another time and place. As mother hums, the table, the stove, the refrigerator, the cupboard and the floor all recede and the room is suffused with evening light. The walls give way and open out onto a vast expanse of land, a continent far distant an empire of white berioskalach. Softly, softly, swaying her curly green hair, my white berioskalach prays on and on. Every single leaf of hers murmurs a quiet prayer. Please, little berioskalach, also pray for me. I came here alone from distant parts. Alien is the God from here and alien is his speech. He cannot see my sadness or understand my prayer. Please, little Berioskale, also pray for me. From the distant west, a gentle breeze has come and tells the tiny leaves legends without end. Something deep within my heart begins to yearn and pray. 
please, little Berioska there, also pray for me. And I said, thank you. And I sat too with my father. Now, with my father, I would sit on the park bench in Curtin Square. And, um, uh, and, and I'd say, Shankovitcher Avenue. And he'd say, oh, Shankovitcher Avenue. That's where we used to play billiards and chess. And that's where Kondrucic, the right, white Russian, sold ice creams. And that's where we went to the Apollo Cinema on a Saturday night. And that's where we ate halva and Turkish delight in the Macedonian quarters. You know, now that I'd walked those streets, the stories came. They just came to me. I knew the maps. And so I want to end by saying that if, if I looked back, if I looked back on those years now, I think it's 30 years of being a writer, sometimes a stand-up storyteller, um, and I had to sort of say, well, how, how, how would I kind of characterise this journey? I'd say in a way there are three things. The first is what they call expression. Expression means, ex means out, exit, out. Expression means getting it out. For me, it doesn't have to be this way, but for me, I discovered writing as a 12-year-old kid and my mum and dad were in a fury. The sadness, the madness of what had happened almost destroyed them, especially my mum. She could never forgive herself for having survived. And uh, I used to get very angry. I used to get enraged. Um, uh, and, I, and, I, I, and one day I found myself going to the bedroom and I closed the door and the storm was still brewing in the kitchen, always in the kitchen. And for some reason I began to write. And as I began to write, the pen began to dash across the page. I still don't remember what I wrote, but I know I wrote fast. And when I stood up... An amazing thing happened when I walked into that room. I felt light. And when I left, sorry, I felt heavy. But when I left, I felt light. I'd gotten it out. Expression. Exit. When you go to the Greek island of Ithaca and you drink up, you say, you don't say cheers, you say exo, tavasana, outside with my problems. Out. But there's craft. There's craft. And you learn the craft in the doing. You learn the craft in being willing to practice. And I learned something else. The first thing I learned was to get it out, but when you start, and all writers know this, and it can be a big struggle, but when you start getting it out, you begin to work it out. That's the amazing thing. Every book, every story is something you've worked out. And you work it out in the doing. The second thing, so the first place of stories is myself and my own journeys. I can turn them into fiction, like Scraps of Heaven. I can turn them into memoir, like Jewels and Ashes. I can turn them into stories, like The Fig Tree and Violin Lessons. You know. But the second, the second place, the second step is impression, taking it in, listening to other people's stories. But listening also, and this is what Indigenous people know so well, listening to the land listening to, you want to know why men left rocky Ithaca because when you go up into the mountains and you work the land and you go through the olive picking season, it's rocky, it's hard. The feet and the calves and the thighs ache after a day of work and that soil won't sustain its people. So you've got to find a way 
and you end up in distant Australia. And you end up in the Cafe Neo years later, listening to the stories and beginning to understand 20 years. You know, 20 is an interesting number. When Odysseus was away for 20 years, know what it means? You know why it was 20 years? Because that's one generation. He didn't see his son grow up. And there are men from Ithaca who didn't see their children grow up. Um, and women who waited, sometimes in vain, for them to return. So impression is, that, is listening to others. Listen to the old guy in the pub. Listen to Arnie Joy. Arnie Joy has transformed, Arnie Joy Murphy, my view of Melbourne because she's taken me and it's been a 20, year, 20 years ago when I began that journey with her to places I'd never seen before and never known before so that my most precious place in this city, and Rebecca would know this, is that half acre called Corondurk Cemetery. If you go there in silence and reverence, you will... You will, you will be amazed, and you'll absorb so much. But the final, the final step is the mirror. The miracle of story is this. You can only tell one story at a time, and you've got to be true to the story. You've got to be true to the specifics of the story. You've got to work to get the story right. But when you put it out there and it goes on its journey, it reflects as a mirror for many, many other people's stories in ways that are astonishing. And one example is in a story called, in a book called Violin Lessons. It's a story called The Dust of Life. The Dust of Life. In 1970, the summer of 1969-70, 20-year-old Australians were being conscripted to go and fight in Vietnam. My name didn't come up in the birthday lottery but I went. I was curious. I had a rucksack on my back. I made my way to Bangkok, to the Vietnamese embassy, and somehow got a journalist visa. And weeks later, I'm flying on a DC-3 into war-torn Saigon. Half a million American soldiers, 10,000 Australian soldiers there at that time. Mayhem, madness, vast waves of forest turned into blackened stumps and denuded of their leaves. And of all the things that happened to me in those few weeks that I spent in Saigon, the one that stood out and is the heart of his story, The Dust of Life, is that I met an American journalist who was so sick of what was going on. It set up a room, and in this room there were 50 pandanus leaf mattresses, and on each one there was a kid and they, uh, of about... 11, 12, 13, 14. Some were orphans, some were just street kids. And the Vietnamese used to call them the dust of life. And by day they used to go out and they used to take American soldiers to brothels. They used to show them where you can sell drugs. They used to, some of them, the more innocent ones, uh, used to be shining shoes. But at night they had this place they came to and one day one of the kids, and they had like this family and I stayed there. And one day one of these kids said, I'm taking you out. He, used to, he spoke a kind of American patois, which he'd learned from the American soldiers. And he takes me through Saigon to Cholon, the Chinese quarters, which are pockmarked with bullets because it'd be what was known as the Tet Offensive. And the Viet Cong had come to the heart of the city two years earlier. 
And he sits down, he pulls out a packet of tobacco and then there's bits of newspaper and he rolls a cigarette like this and he's sucking away and I'm looking at the face of a kid and then I'm looking at a hardened face and he's saying to me, two years ago, my village was bombed and I was running from the flames and I stopped dead in my tracks after 100 metres and I looked back and I, I realised I'd never seen my mother and father alive again and I went back 10 years in time and so many thousands of kilometres in space to that house in 387 Canning Street and my mum waking up from that dream. That's the mirror. And that's why we tell stories. We tell stories because we cross boundaries. We come to see each other face to face. We come to see two things. Two things. First, we see our uniqueness our difference, what makes us a specific individual. Every single person here has got their own specific stories to tell. But at the same time, if you sit down and you tell the story and listen to the other person's story, you begin to discover your common humanity, something that breaks through all those barriers. And that's the best of who we are and can be as a country. So I'll end with just a short reading. And it comes at the end of Jewels and Ashes because sometimes you go through the flames and you go through the fire and you come to a moment. So the first moment is for my mum because she mellowed, especially after we bought that house, after years of living in it as a rented house. She had a space that became her own on a basalt plain fed by volcanoes in the west. You know, that's what Melbourne is, a vast basalt plain. There is a certain position by the kitchen table from which a window high on the wall opposite the bathroom can be seen. Here mother often sits and gazes at the upper branches of a tree. Timber frames divide the window into 12 separate squares so that the light streams in at many angles and degrees of intensity. Sometimes it is restrained, the branches barely visible. At other moments, it blazes a luminous gold. In the winter, the branches are thin and bare, while in spring they are up with leaves. In her ageing, mother's life has been reduced to a simple equation, a silence with infinite variations of tranquility and light. Concentrated, framed, contained, yet full of subtle movement and change. The silence is rarely broken, except for a sudden gust of wind, the distant barking of a dog, the twittering of birds. They return every year, Mother announces from one of her reveries. Birds can speak, she adds. They have a language of their own. They probably talk about where they've been for the past year. They perch on that tree and chatter to each other. You can hear how pleased they are to be back. And this for my father. The whole, he was a poet. But for 40 years, he took a detour working in factories on the Victoria market. I, I've got to restrain myself. That's another story. And I'll read you this. Um, so I've got to tell you this. I never worked for my dad for two reasons. One, he hated what he was doing, right? And uh, secondly, he never paid me. So I worked for Eddie O'Sullivan. Eddie O'Sullivan was a big Irishman who sold nuts. You name it, he sold it. Peanuts, walnuts, almonds, 
cashew nuts, you know, and he had two states of drunkenness, happy drunk and sad drunk. Sad drunk, he'd sink under the counter and say, Arnold, look after the business. And happy drunk, he'd put his arm around me and say, Arnold, you too can become a professional nutter. <laughs> Which is exactly what I've become. <laughs> so I better finish. And I'll finish with this one for my dad, who just wanted to be a poet. The whole of existence is contained in words, Father claims. Words are the source. They are more durable than the grass we are sitting on, he stresses, while poking his fingers at the ground. This grass must eventually fade, whereas words eternalise our experiences and express the sum total of what we have been in our lives. Words will never die, so long as there are human beings to receive them. All our knowledge and feelings can thereby be retrieved. Father is now fully in his element, spinning a long thread of thought to which he clings with tenacity so that it will not escape his grasp. Of course, there are words which bind us to prejudice and blind faith, he stresses. Such words must be stripped naked so that we can find our way back to the pure meaning of things, to words which do not dictate our lives and condition our thoughts. As Father talks, his whole being is in harness. Words will always triumph, he asserts. I'm talking of words that express our innermost feelings. In words lie their potential to break out and be released. As he makes this claim, Father's voice falters and gives way to tears. But as usual, he fights them off before they overwhelm him. Yet in that moment, we had both glimpsed and felt that which cannot be captured in words. But of course, Father tries. He tells me that in his tears... He had sensed both his greatest happiness and regret. Happiness because he had realised that at last he had been fully understood. His words had been received. Regret because he knows that soon he must leave this world he has come to love so dearly. And he concedes there are moments which move beyond words. Perhaps this is what can be called a zisertoit, a sweet death, he muses. Perhaps this is what we are striving for after all, a silence, a zisatoit, beyond all memory and words. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Words in Winter podcast. Words in Winter is a literary festival that runs every year in the cold winter months of August in Dalesford, Victoria, Australia. If you'd like to find out more about the festival, please go to wordsinwinter.com. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them at wordsinwinter.com forward slash podcasts.